My name is Alan Grosstephen. I'm an assistant professor of English at Agnes Scott College. I'm here today on November 3rd, Election Day, to host a podcast with six students for my senior seminar in creative writing. The senior seminar is the culmination for the English major at Agnes Scott, in which students work the entire semester on one creative project. Usually, we would be in the classroom where a tight-knit and supportive community of writers is formed. This year, due to the pandemic, we've been working online, seeing each other weekly for class discussions, video conferences, and workshops. Each of these six writers is extraordinary in their own way. They're writing about important topics like race, migration, queer identity, exclusion, and family. They have joined us from all over the United States. We'll start with each writer sharing a short excerpt from their project, and then we'll have a discussion. What I wanted to do to start, just to introduce everyone to each writer and the type of writing that they're doing, I think in the room today, we've got both a fiction project, a poetry project, a couple nonfiction projects, and just a really, I think just a really interesting variety of voices with each writer and, and just different approaches to, to writing. So why don't we begin, I was thinking probably our first reader, just because she's writing a bit about the last election, the 2016 election, could be Natasha Griffin. I'm wondering if you could just really briefly talk about what your project is about and give, give yeah. us a little bit of context. So I wrote a collection of short stories. Um, the whole project is called Living the American Dream. And it's set during the days leading up to the 2016 presidential election. And during this time, life is just reflect, uh, reflected on aspects of one's normal or questioned by people from different regions of the United States. So this story was set in Alaska. And each story just spans over, you know, different characters of different ages, genders, religions, as well as families, which could either be blood relation or chosen. So I just wanted to look at that time period <laughs> for a little bit. Great. Thank you. And yeah, Tasha, if you could read just a, you know, a portion of your project so we could hear it. Okay. So this is a section from my latest story called The Bashir Sisters. So here I go. As the women headed out of the auditorium, they walked down the long hallway to their mother's room, passing by other staff members who greeted them. And the walls of artwork the residents created during a class. Look, this one is mom's visa, Remy said. The two stopped while Leia and their mother were still in their own world, talking away, not a care in the world. Asala had painted their family. The living room with the girls, their mother and father playing a game of Jenga. Growing up, the sisters often played different games with their parents every Thursday. I guess she painted a game night, Faiza whispered, the two inch closer to see the details their mother had painted from the large brown sofa with orange throw pillows and the soft orange carpet. The living room walls were covered in family photos and their family all seated around the muddy brown coffee table and tan Jenga pieces with faded smiley faces drawn on by their father falling. Even in the painting, their mother had captured the competitiveness of a young Remy and herself, the loud laughter of their father, Mari, jumping through the image, 
and teenage Fiza consoling little Leia, crying after making the pieces fall. Time was really simple back then, huh? Remy asked. Yeah, you sure was a sore loser, Fiza snorted. Even as they grew older and moved out of their family homes to eventually become neighbors with their parents, game night never stopped. They continued looking at their mother's work until her voice lulled them back to reality. Come on, girls. I want to get a head start before the snowstorm. Fiza and Remy quickly jogged to their baby sister and mother, walking into the old woman's room. That's it. Great. Thank you. So, Tasha, you, you've talked about it a little bit, but you've got three stories in your project set in three very different locations. If I remember, we're in New York City, we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then in the last story that you just read from, we're in Alaska. And the unifying element is that it's election day for all these people, for all these characters. And it's 2016, same day, November 3rd, which is today. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe two things. I mean, one, what is it about election day that sort of brings so much of kind of who we are, I guess, as Americans, as individuals to the surface, along with, I think, you know, a lot of tension of, of everyone you know, sort of voting for their candidate and, and wishing um, that their values or, you know, certain political beliefs would be represented. And also, I guess just a little bit about how your piece, I think, is about, you know, sort of division and community. I mean, this, this idea that somehow people are held together and yet very much split apart in, in your different stories. So maybe if you could touch a little bit on both those. In a way, both of those questions um, are kind of combined because I think the election period, especially from candidates or just people talking about their views, they try and highlight these issues or conversations that to me have always been there, especially um, all of my stories are about, you know, Black people in the country. So of course, every day living in this country, you have those conversations about those issues. But it's only to me during election period when they're trying to pull from the community, they're trying to garner support or some type of respect that like they actually discuss the things that people go through, which is also kind of why I wanted that to be the central piece between these stories, but not the main focus of these stories. So in all of them, while the election is there in the background, it's really about the characters and their dynamics, whether it's about the family or their friends. Um, just to, I guess, in my mind, emphasize that while the election is going on, life doesn't stop. Life is going to continue before and after, whether or not these people who are trying to garner your support or get your vote um, care about you or really care about the issues that you face. So yeah, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, you did. It was, it was kind of interesting. I mean, just you know, thinking about what you just said, following the election in the last couple of weeks, it seems like, you know, each presidential candidate right now is very much targeting like Latino voters or black male voters or like a very particular racial group. And then, you know, coming up with some sort of argument of why they're the best representative for that group. Yes, yeah. definitely. It's been, I guess, a strange period. So 2016, I was a junior in high school and I went to a boarding day high school in North Georgia. Um, so in the middle of town, but the school itself was full with different types of ethnicities and different cultures. So it's this contrast between 
culture and then this very white country town. And during that time period, that's, I guess, I saw true colors of people, um, people who I thought were friends or people who I thought were different suddenly change or were acting strange towards me or, you know, saying, you know, the known things like everything isn't about race or, you know, why do you have to be so upset about this? Um, so I guess that's something that has been in the forefront of my mind and knowing that nothing to me has really changed in four years, that we're still in the same rut that we are. I guess that's why I like pushed me to write about these stories. <laughs> So I, I think for our next reader, I'm wondering if, Morgan, you could really briefly just give us a sense of what your project is about and then read a, a passage for us. So this is Morgan Brown, who is writing kind of an interesting hybrid project that I, I would say involves poetry, nonfiction. It, it's a type of lyric essay that has lots of collage and different voices mixed together, but maybe you can say something more about that. It definitely has taken on the form of a collage. I've pulled a lot of quotes from different books, songs, movies, just a variety of sources. And I've kind of put them together in conversation with each other to create this sense of kind of unity across different experiences. And so that's kind of a theme that I hope is prevalent throughout the entire piece is that I really wanted to focus on marginalized communities in the original, like and when I first thought about this project back in the spring. And then over time, it just became more and more specific to LGBTQ plus community individuals. And I think even more so based on the readings that I chose over the summer, I think it's kind of honed in on like the trans experience. And so I really wanted to pull from all these different sources to show that even though each experience is different and unique, there's kind of like a thread of unity through it all. So I'm going to read the first couple pages, which will take us through some quotes and then a couple poems of my own. So when people say that poetry is a luxury or an option or for the educated middle classes or that it shouldn't be read at school because it is irrelevant, or any of the strange and stupid things that are said about poetry and its place in our lives, I suspect that the people doing the saying have had things pretty easy. A tough life needs a tough language, and that is what poetry is. That is what literature offers, a language powerful enough to say how it is. It isn't a hiding place, it is a finding place. I thought by now I'd be unhappy, unconscious next to the same lover, once I'd switched from regular to Diet Coke, and then I thought, maybe you could be cured by love. If I was loved deeply enough by others, I would be content to stay a boy. Or content in the body I was given, didn't ask for, didn't recognize. If I was loved deeply enough by others, or loved just a little, just enough to know I can be me and be seen and be out. Dear secret admonisher, I've looked you in the eyes countless times. You must have many names, like the names of every kid at school who called me a boy with big boobs or mustachio or my own mother every time I wasn't girl enough. Your identity is not a question. Your identity is not a phase, a fleeting thought, cannot be untaught or retrained with praise. 
Your identity is not worthy of letting rot or repentance on Sundays. A fleeting thought, withered, bruised apricot, shaken from wicked ways. Your identity is not decaying, root rot, unworthy of light's rays. A fleeting thought, out of earshot, only on off days. Your identity is not a fleeting thought. Thank you, Morgan. So I'm, I'm wondering, Morgan, you, you read to us this mixture of voices and you talked a little bit about it. But I guess my question for you, thinking about your subject, which is, um, as you mentioned, it's about LGBTQ plus experience and, and, and these different, I don't know, you, you've got these very different personal stories about um, identity. And I'm wondering why collage? What made you, what's your relationship with collage and with, you know, trying to tell this story with this mixture of voices and with your own kind of through line voice running through that? Sure. So the process of writing this, I think for myself, tends to pull from a lot of different sources. I think it, that the way that this piece is structured as a collage kind of mimics the way that my brain works. And so when I'm thinking about a topic, I'm thinking about all the things that have influenced how I feel on that topic. And the idea of identity itself to me is something that I've been thinking about over the past almost most of the year since we've been kind of in isolation with COVID. I feel like I've just been looking in a mirror, just face to face, forced to look at like, what is my identity? Why? And so I really it became really apparent how many different voices go into, at least for myself, what my identity is. And I mean, that showed up in the form of, you know, am I choosing my career path for myself or for my parents and pieces of myself that I can show and feel safe with on campus. But now that with COVID, I've been forced to be around family nonstop, you know, can I have that piece of me be out. Can I identify with that piece of me? So I really wanted to kind of parallel that process of everything that goes into identity. And one of kind of the strings in some of the voices that I have throughout the piece also touch on like religion, because I know for myself, like faith and religion is something that strongly has influenced my identity. And I do identify with the LGBTQ plus community. And I know that if I were to bring that up to family, religion would be a something that they heavily lean on to kind of denounce that. And so I just wanted to kind of bring in all these different voices that I think, at least for myself, impact identity. And I was hoping also to, in a way of bringing in all these different voices and making it kind of a almost trying to make it into one voice. I was hoping, I think, as I said earlier, to really show kind of like the unification that can happen. Because I do hope that my readers can read through this piece and find a sense of belonging in a sense, in a way, but also not necessarily finding identity in a piece, but finding identity within themselves and feeling like more secure in that. I hope that this piece was more just affirming of identity by bringing in all these different voices. Great, thank you. So I, I think for our next reader, and I'm wondering for, for you, Lorraine Simon, if you could tell us just a little bit about your project and then read a passage of it for us. Yeah, hi. So my project 
is about a young girl who explores her family's history and how she came to be through her dreams. And I and my family really love dreams. We take them very seriously from this West Indian framework. They oftentimes predict what's going on in our relationships or how we're really feeling. And when I hear stories from my family, a dream usually takes us into that. So I wondered how would it be like to experience that from a child's frame of mind and how to explore that further. So I try to write with a dream scope in the form of short stories. Here is a quick excerpt from one of my short stories, Down the Rabbit Hole. We floated by a yacht. An English couple on board shouted at us, Wagwan. They were so excited and pleased with themselves we couldn't help it. Laughter erupted from every port it could escape from. Our jaws stretched open inch by inch until tongues and twitching uvulas replaced our faces. Was it their accents or how easily we could pass to them? We weren't trying to pass like we usually do. We were just carefree. They envied that about us. Shit, we envied that too. But at least we couldn't pretend here. The water is so warm we were jealous of the rocks that got to sink below, letting the water sweep them through sweep them smooth until they eventually became part of the sand. The water climbs up and presses down on our chest and clutches us by our necks. It glides over our bellies and holds our breasts still, a love language no one else would understand. To be cradled like it's okay to rest our heads and sleep. We want to hold us here forever, pull us deeper maybe, and remember us. Remember us so that whenever we come back, we'll be able to embrace it the same way, like we never left etch the memory into our minds, right here at home. No worries, just wait. How long have we been here? The sun is gone. Hey, how long have we, someone starts but stops? It's me, I'm alone. Maybe the others got caught in a current. The planes that were once around my ankles long gone. I stood up in the water and now just barely covered my knees and took in my new surroundings. I reached shore, but instead of the beach at home, I was facing a forest. It was dark, but a single star in the sky lit it up enough for me to see. Every tree, bush, and branch were tangled and extending in every direction. It was obvious by the way they bent that no one was supposed to enter. For a while, I just stood there in the water, watching from a safe distance, contemplating on jumping back in to go home. But I couldn't decide. And before I could, the ocean started crawling away. Watching it go, I couldn't help but feel embarrassed. It can't feel, only reflect, I tell myself. That's its nature. But that didn't gel, that didn't feel true. It was hard to not think it was me. The warmth I felt coming from me the whole time. I'm alone. I'm too distracted. It's time to go. Great, thank you. You know, Lorraine, you began a piece that I think is set Jamaica and you're doing kind of interesting things in terms of language, I think in terms of tradition and secrets, and you're, you're just sort of taking the reader in between cultures, you know, in between the United States and these other places. And so, I don't know, I guess I'm interested in you know, how this work is developed and what is it that you find so compelling about this, this project? Yeah, so I guess what I find the most compelling about it is just how much a child can pay attention to the stories that their parents tell and for me I don't even know when it began when my parents were free about explaining things that like family secrets or um, how our family dynamic works but it just became clearer and clearer as I got older 
So I wanted to write that in there as well. And I tried to see like, you know, this child has that same language that um, they're like regurgitating basically what their parents have told them. And um, it's fun to see that kind of develop for her as the story goes along. There's a, there's a mention, Lou, in your story about passing. And what, what does that mean in this particular context? In this context, for that character passing, it, even though that they are aware of the culture that they grew up around from family, it's still very different from living in a completely different culture of, like in the United States. So they desperately do want to hold on to that heritage that roots them to that place. So when they're home, they would like to pass, but there's still just that difference, like an easy way to spot an American sometimes in the islands is how fast that we walk. And there's always a comment on that. So it's just subtle differences like this, but because they were noticed by the English couple, they just easily passed to them because to them, they just saw carefree individuals in a pool or in an ocean. Great, and one, one, I guess, final question for you, Lou, is talk a little bit about writing the dialogue, because to me, you know, I've known your writing now since, I guess, last spring when you were in my fiction workshop. And one of the exciting things about this is all the rich dialogue that you've got, I think, you know, from primarily Jamaican characters speaking in, you know, colloquial, using slang and, and speaking in, in different uh, types of patois. Can you say something about that, just what the dialogue is doing to drive the story and what it's like to write that? So for the dialogue, um, I wanted to show how the narrator, their relationships with their grandparent is, or the grandmother, because she's a very dominant voice. Um, and I think that we all have this voice of either a parent or a grandparent or someone else that's close to you. So I wanted to show that this grandmother, um, how she's raised the whole family or at least looked after the whole family and how she tells the story of their home to her. So I tried to let my characters speak freely as far as as far as how their personalities are like what would what do I think that they would say at this moment and just kind of go with that. So our next reader here is Eve Barrett and Eve I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of the overall project and then read a passage for us. Okay. So my project is about exploring houses uh, specifically houses as metaphor for physical body, our own physical bodies, and also exploring the connection between houses, empathy, and bodies. What does it mean when I tell you that we are all houses, brick by brick, we are all building a type of life for ourselves? So yes, my project is a collection of essays that surround and explore that prompt. And then I'm going to read an excerpt from my first essay. Built by slaves, the Carton Mansion stands tall to this day. The plantation was used as a field hospital for the Confederate Army, and the house's parlor was fashioned into an operating room. When you walk in the, house, in the home, walls are lined with vintage wallpaper and white faces in every room as the portraits of the McGavick family stare down at you. The wooden floors that creak even when you're standing still are stained with blood from long gone soldiers. <clears throat> Northwest from the mansion lies row after row of Confederate bodies laid to rest in the McGavick Confederate Cemetery. 
These were not the details that made an impression in my young memory. Instead, I became engrossed with the story of one of the McGavick children who had been playing on the stairs on the second floor. From what I remember, the child had not looked, taken a step too wide, and fell from the railing, hitting the first floor. Like the soldiers that came after him, his blood has seeped on carpet and into the hardwood floor underneath, staining the wood permanently. Imagine little black girls surrounded in sea of white by Confederate memorabilia and ghosts and standing over a reflection of her own possible mortality. The child's death was more impactful than the soldier's because he had been even younger than she. I remember thinking at the time, if I would stain like that when I go on. I remember, and I say this because memories are malleable and changed by time and state of mind, being comforted at the fact that the house wouldn't let him go, even when everything else did. I remember in another two-story house in which my own family lived, my sister and all her anger made worse by teenage years would, after any small inconvenience, slam her door so hard that the doorknob would always crash and dance off her room's wall. When she wasn't satisfied with that, she would slam her fist into the same part of wall where doorknob had just bruised. Eventually, wall gave away to big gaping hole that matched the size of her anger. When we had to move and sell the home, the hole was, of course, the first thing repaired, but it still took several years to sell the actual house. Maybe it's because potential buyers could feel the anger that lingered and remained. Even when covered up, there are a thousand ways that a space can warp from the simple fact of your existence. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could talk about, because there's all this movement in a way between different types of houses, right? I mean, there's this Civil War historical house, and then there's the narrator's house, this very personal house. And there's all this movement through time. I mean, you, you go from the present back to, you know, the Civil War, and you move through multiple houses actually within the essay. I'm wondering if you could say just a little bit about sort of how you're mixing a very personal story, you know, this anecdote about a sister slamming a door and damaging a house with American history, right? In a very specific part of American history, which has to do with, you know, race and racism. I think for me, when it comes to mixing, when I try to mix my own personal experiences and memories and houses that I've lived in with larger ideas of race and American history and just talking about who we are as humans in general. I have to do it in a way um, where I am, I can personally connect to the history and um, the larger questions and ideas that I'm trying to explore. So for the Civil War, um, it was easy for me to do that because growing up in Tennessee, it's basically the main thing that we learned. And especially since I grew up in Franklin, um, which has such a strong emphasis on the Civil War and the battles that were fought in Franklin, it was easier for me to connect and blend my personal history with my uh, with the the larger history because it's it's just how I grew up. But every time 
I'm writing an essay, um, especially for this collection, I start off with the bigger idea, the larger implications that I want to explore. And then I have to, I start thinking, but when I actually write, I have to start with myself, the personal, for it to actually get down on paper. Good. And maybe just to elaborate a little bit more, I mean, on on one hand, the houses that you're writing about are, you know, these very concrete, real houses that exist. But these houses, they, they also, to my mind, act as a metaphor, and that these houses are about this sort of larger theme of safety and danger. And you have a narrator who doesn't usually feel very comfortable in her house. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, so the narrator for my essays, I guess it's a contradiction or an exploration of binaries, because on one hand, um, the narrator uh, wants to build a house in her head. She wants to build or wants to be in the house that's welcoming, that's safe, that's basically a home to everybody that comes into it. But on the other hand, she's also afraid of the idea of being in her own house, um, as well as the danger that can come from being inside the world and outside the world, but also still trying to look for and craving that connection with others. And I guess exploring the contradictions of wanting to let someone into your home, but also being afraid of what happens when you let people in, but also being afraid of the home itself. Uh, so when, when I'm exploring those ideas and those contradictions, I personally don't really see them as contradictions because eventually in my head, they all just kind of blend in together. But I had to write it in such a way that it connects with everyone else while also still being a contradiction, if that makes sense. <laughs> It does, and maybe you could mention there's a specific moment in one of your essays where you've got this narrator awake late at night and can't sleep, and not mm-hmm. long after that, you've got then a list of different African Americans who have been killed either in their houses by the police or on their way home. Can you just talk about kind of putting those elements next to each other? Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore what it means to be in your home and which people, we generally think that homes are safe and that homes, you don't have to worry when you're in your own home. But then you also have this complex problem if if you're a Black person in America, that even when you're in your own homes, um, you're not safe. And I just kind of want to explore the idea of home as body and implying and showing that houses um, for Black people and for minorities across America are like being in your own body and being not safe in your own body because of your skin color, while also not being safe in your own home because at any point of time, the sad reality is that people can take away your life even when you're not doing anything to them and just existing in your own homes and your own bodies. Great, thank you. So our our next reader is coming to us from Chicago, Anel Chavez. And Anel, I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about your project and then read a portion of it. Okay, Um, hey, it's Anel. (laughs) 
project is a collection of short nonfiction essays. The collection is titled Faulty Clairvoyance, and it's basically taking a look into my past as a Mexican-American being born here in America, but also looking to what I, my family has in Mexico and what I have in Mexico. It's almost a reflection of secrets that not necessarily your family wants to tell you or others. It's a mixture of Spanish and English because I really wanted this project to get across that I'm bilingual and that there's kind of like a mixture between both languages. And I didn't, I wanted the distinction to be there, especially because in this country, how many people view others who speak more than one language and not, you know, a positive light. So I'll be reading an expert from my story titled Algodón de Azúcar Rosa, and this is going to be the beginning page of it. I was annoyed. It was taking too long and my mama was pulling at my hair with the wooden brush. It was way too early for this. I wanted to leave already. I wanted cotton candy, not necessarily for the sweet taste of the fluffy texture melting on my small tongue, but for the prize that comes with it. I hate cotton candy. It's only pretty to look at. It's only there to hide away the real stuff. I sat on my chair squirming, wondering if I could get away with wearing my hair down instead of this crown of braids my mom insisted on doing. Ya estamos tardando mucho. Mi abuelita se va a enojar. I whined at her. I tried to move my head up to look at her. I could already hear the bells calling. It's the first string. My mama, in retaliation, pulled my tiny little braid on my tiny little head a little bit harder than necessary. ¿Y? ¿De quién es la culpa que te has levantado tan tarde, niñito bobona? Mama yelled at me. I sniffed, wanting to cry, but stayed silent. After a while of my mom fixing my hair, she finally put the tiny fake white flower clips into the braid to mock a crown. Ya terminé. Levántate de la silla. I jumped off and walked to a mirror with a false bravo, where it was located in the old wooden closet with the side door that no longer closed fully. I heard stray roosters singing and chickens clucking, with the occasional cow or goat trying to cry out for freedom. The two side windows opened to let in the light and fresh air. We were on the second floor of my abuelito's house in Mexico. I was often reminded that I should stop trying to stick my head outside the window if I didn't want to fall and impale myself on the iron fence. And that's the first page. Great. I guess for you and Ellen, you talked about it briefly. You're writing this piece um, with quite a bit of Spanish mixed in. I mean, it really is a bilingual um, collection of essays. And talk about why that's so important to you to have the, the Spanish mixed in with the English and really without translation in many instances, without uh, much explanation. It's really important for me to keep the piece bilingual without any translations because growing up here in America, I necessarily didn't read a lot of Spanish and English mixed together. It wasn't until college that um, in one of my English classes, we read um, Anzaldúa, Borderlands and Frontera. And I saw how she just wrote what, like, what she wanted to in Spanish and English without translating anything. And that to me was like amazing. Like, oh my God, I can do that. I can share my stories to other people who have similar experiences to me without having to translate anything. Like to force the reader if they really want to know for themselves to translate your works is, I think, key to why I wanted to do this. 
And, and one other question for you, Anel. You, you talked about, and, and so many of your pieces do seem to have some sort of kind of buried information, like there is a secret, there's some sort of silence that is driving the narrative and is bringing tension into the different relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that works in, in, in the writing? My writing, personally, I like to be very subtle when it comes to, I don't like to be blunt. I want there to be some sort of mystery. I want the readers to like, to keep rereading my work and to find out what it is I'm actually trying to say, especially with personally in my family in Mexican culture, there's always gossip. There's always something going on and they don't necessarily tell you upfront. In one of my stories, I think it's the second essay I wrote, third degree gossip. It's about the narrator eavesdropping into her mom, having conversations with her aunts back in Mexico and the narrator trying to figure out who are they talking about? Because typically, and I think it's across most households, your parents, when you're younger, when you're a teenager, when you're a child, they don't necessarily want to tell you what are the problems in the family, what's going on, who got into this mess, how are they trying to get this person out of this mess? And I feel that that's something I wanted to write about that goes on with a lot of my other stories. I originally, when I started writing, I wanted to write about my past, but I didn't think it would end up developing into just my childhood and my teenage years, which is what, the, what most of my collection is about. And just looking back and seeing everything, I'm like, wow, I, as a kid, I really, you know, I didn't really notice these things. Like in the first story I read, Algodón de Azúcar Rosa, I realized that there was a lot going on when I was a child taking my grandmother to the church for mass and just as a child you notice so many things and at the same time most of the things you notice can be unimportant to the adult eyes but to you it means the world. Wonderful, thank you Anel. So our final reader is Isabella Barbudo and um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could tell us something about your project and then give us a, a portion of it. Yeah, um, so my project is kind of started as wanting to do something with like traumatic humor because I think a lot of my favorite television, films, and books all are kind of like that. They make me laugh, but also they're about something deeper. And this summer, I've been reading a lot of David Sedaris and or this past summer. <laughs> and he has a really special way of writing about something really, really serious in his life, but making it humorous and making it a little lighter. But then it also sticks with you afterwards. And I wanted to write a collection of essays that kind of leave the reader thinking about it later. And yeah, so what I'm going to read today is an excerpt of um, an essay called On Acting, and yeah, I'm just going to begin. <laughs> the Mermaid was the first of many productions I was involved in at this particular theater. Maybe it was the charm of the building itself, or perhaps the paralyzing fear I felt when I was unable to remember a line which the director would then humiliate me for in front of the homeschooled actors. But there was something about this that made me come back for more. Most of the plays I was involved in would happen during the school year. So for me, as the only public school kid involved, the nights were especially dreadful. 
How late is rehearsal tonight, Isabella? My mother would say as I sat at our kitchen table, shuffling through my script and trying my darndest to memorize my servant lines. Marguerite says nine, but that usually means 10, give or take 15. Marguerite did not care for our personal schedules and eventually I came to learn that that is what makes a dedicated artist. There was no time to study ancient Mesopotamia for my social studies test on Friday, especially if I wanted to be taken seriously as an actor. For late evening rehearsals, when we were given around 20 minutes for dinner, my mother would make me tuna fish sandwiches cut into four squares on whole wheat bread with a side of Cheez-Its or carrot sticks. I loved tuna sandwiches, but soon I realized all the other actors were getting takeout delivered and eating oysters or braised rabbit risotto from the bistro down the street. I waved to my parents through the stage left curtain before we began on opening night. It was a short wave because Marguerite caught me 30 seconds in and frantically rushed over to give me a stern and frightening talking to about how inappropriate breaking the fourth wall was. She said real actors never break the fourth wall. I never again make the mistake of not being in character 30 minutes before a show again. Until my very last performance, I was able to be found murmuring in gibberish to myself until the last moment when the curtains would go up. Even so, I would learn to avoid Marguerite at all costs on show nights. I slowly regained confidence and soon enough the play began and not Ariel was on stage, which meant that I, her servant, would be needed shortly. When it was time for me to go on stage as the prince's French assistant, Francois, at the end of act one, I was more than ready. I remember flashes of that performance as Francois. As I stood on top of the prince's ship with a pillow down my pants and one shoved up my shirt, I wondered first, whose pillow is that, that it's so close to my underwear? I continued to shout my lines down at the audience, like Marguerite had told me to, and then another unavoidable thought pushed its way in. Why was I the one chosen to be this overweight French guy? Maybe I looked a little like him. This is when I began to have a few doubts about the theater. A few scenes later, those doubts faltered when I came off stage after making the young girl who was playing the queen laugh so uncontrollably that we had to endure five long minutes of shrieking about acting etiquette from Marguerite. Great, thank you. So Isabella, I have a question for you and it's thinking a little bit about, I mean, well, one, I, I feel like this particular essay um, I know represented kind of a breakthrough for you as a writer. It's got humor and it's got a story, I think very much about, you know, where you grew up, your family. And it also, I think, hits on like a really key theme in all your project, which is this, this sense of belonging and not belonging, right? I mean, joining a theater class and yet feeling like the outsider. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit, um, you know, what happened with, with, with the writing of this essay and what changed for you? I think I had more of a plan. I don't really have plans when I'm writing usually. And I think I knew what I wanted to write about and also my memories from this time in my life are incredibly vivid because what I tried to do in this piece in particular was really show who Marguerite was, the director. And I think in a lot of the essays that I've written for this kind of collection, there are all these people who are like authority figures who added a lot to my feelings of exclusion. And like, obviously, the students, the homeschooled kids from in the theater with me, 
added to that too. And I write about my lacrosse team. And I think there was a lot of that in who I was choosing to have as friends. What stands out to me are these authority figures who were supposed to be kind of not keeping me feeling like secure, but not attacking me a lot of the time. And I think that's what happened. And I kind of, obviously, like I have a self-effacing sense of humor. So that's my the first thing I go to. I kind of just make fun of myself. But there's a lot of realness in the exclusion that I felt in the, the theater and in that in the on acting essay, I write about another my improv instructor who also was like this really scary, like manipulative woman. Um, and my lacrosse coach in a different essay. So there's definitely that type of exclusion is clear throughout all of them. And I didn't know I was going to write about exclusion. I think you, Alan, I think you pointed that out to me that you were, you were like, there's kind of a theme here. And then I kind of tried to focus in on that more afterwards. But yeah, this on acting essay, I think was the first essay I've written that I've been like truly, truly proud of too. So that was a really good feeling. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Bleeding Everywhere, the Agnes Scott College podcast is sponsored by Agnes Scott College.